Hello and welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final film of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is film editor Sally Menke. Menke began her film editing career in 1983 with the romantic comedy Cold Feet, starring Griffin Dunn. She worked on some TV specials and 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles before meeting Quentin Tarantino, who hired her to direct his sort of first film, 1992's Reservoir Dogs. Well, you all know what happened after that. Menke went on to edit all of Tarantino's films, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, his segment in Four Rooms, Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, Death Proof, and Inglorious Bastards. After working on the 2010 thriller Peacock, Menke tragically died in a hiking accident, ending one of the most influential and successful collaborations in film history. Joining me to talk about Peacock and Menke's brilliant all-too-brief career is producer, director, and editor, Elizabeth Ng Wong. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, I, am, I am dying to talk to you about film editing in general because... Well- uh, of, of I'm all dying the, to talk to you about it. <laughs> perfect. Of all of the disciplines of, uh, in making a movie, to me, editing is the most fascinating of, of how you, you sculpt the film. And we'll, we'll talk about all that. So I'm just dying to talk to you about, about film editing. And of course, we're here to talk about one of the great editors of all time, Sally Menke, who, uh, you know, her collaboration with Quentin Tarantino was just mm-hmm. off the charts brilliant in terms of how influential it was. And he called her his greatest number one collaborator. And I mean, Tarantino is not a guy that I said gives a whole ton of credit to other people. He sort of is very aware of his own brilliance. So for him to say that about Sally Menke is, is pretty remarkable. I agree. I agree. Um, I mean, when did you first become aware of, of her as like, as a name, like, Oh, you're able to identify, Oh, Sally Menke. She is this editor of these movies. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about that and I, I mean, I would have known, gosh, as as Tarantino's films were making their way into, you know, the rest of the world, I I knew who she was, but I'll openly admit that it wasn't actually until my own uh, work in editing became more and more a part of my entertainment career that I really started to dig deeper into the relationships between directors and editors and who was editing for whom. Um, And so it's really only in the last few years that I can say honestly that I have a proper respect for what Sally Menke would have been doing in her collaboration with Quentin Tarantino. Um, And you know, what's funny is that in discovering it, I also have to admit I've acquired more respect for Quentin Tarantino as a director. Not that I didn't already actually very much appreciate his work. Um, but you know, he is known for being a little bit arrogant. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, and I was really struck when I was uh, reviewing stuff for this podcast and, and um, saw an interview with him where he acknowledged that when he was doing Reservoir Dogs, he was looking specifically for a female editor because he understood he needed more of a nurturing uh, point of view and presence in the edit room. And even though you can argue that you don't have to be a woman in order to provide that, right. <laughs> uh, the, the awareness of what he needed in the editorial space is more what I was impressed by as someone who would have been a first time director at that point, because I feel like uh, a lot of people don't actually know what goes into the day-to-day experience of editing. And it's true, the edit space is an 
nurturing space, at least in the context of, uh, you know, the films that I've worked on. And um, it's, I felt like that was a really impressive awareness that Quentin Tarantino would have had as a first time director. And so the fact that it led to Sally Menke, who then if you listen to her, uh, in her interviews about working with Quentin Tarantino, she understood that, you know, she was there to be the person who was listening, who was providing a safe space to evaluate the footage, uh, and to also push back as much as you could to make sure that the decisions being made were um, the best decisions possible. And I can speak from experience in saying that that's actually the part of the editor's job um, that doesn't get talked about. A lot of people focus on the, you know, your ability to um, craft the visual of it. But in fact, there's this whole other side to editing when you're editing for someone else where you are the person who the director is having to be in a really vulnerable space with. And at a, at a moment in the process, you know, filmmaking can be just so exhausting uh, where you're tired and, um, and where a lot of agendas can come into play all at the same time. So I was really, I, I got so fascinated um, to go back and revisit some of these films, thinking more about their collaboration. I, and it's, it's just been really fun for me because I can, after listening to more of her interviews, I, I really had that sense that she was his go-to person. Like if you can imagine Quentin Tarantino in a vulnerable space, <laughs> it was with Sally Menke. <laughs> and that's amazing. <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, it's really impressive because that's a, it, it means she was both uh, listening and also standing her ground. Um, and I love that. I love it so much. Yeah, the idea of, of, again, him early on in his career like that, having that sense of knowing what he needed in the editing room and, as you say, like a nurturing uh, presence. And like you said, obviously men can be nurturing as yes. well, and there are women who cannot be nurturing. Correct. It's not, not gender-specific. <laughs> but, of course, it does break down. Into, I mean, in fact, there's, um, there's a routine by Patton Oswalt where he talks about film editing, where he, he talks about that, like men are, you know, shooting the film in it. He gives it a sort of, sort of like sexual metaphor where he's like, <laughs> I'm just shooting all this film all over the place. And then he takes the woman has to be like, okay, you shot your film. Now let me come back. And he'd take it back. But I mean, I think about that. Um, I was working at a video store right around when Pulp Fiction came out. And, you know, I can remember being on sort of the front lines of that, like right after he exploded, how many imitators he had. I mean, just every movie that we got now after, after yeah. that was guys holding their guns sideways, you know, <laughs> making pop culture references. <laughs> and it's like you would think that those imitators would have probably given their right arm to work with Tarantino. But Tarantino had enough presence of mind to know if I get an editor who's just going to kind of yes and everything that I say the film's going to be too much. It's going to be too, you know, it's just going to be overload. So you need somebody with a little taste, a little refinement, a little style to kind of say, wait a minute, hold on, let's scale it back a little. So it, it, it achieves more of that balance. And obviously Sally Minky was able to provide that for him. Now, I, I want to talk about your career too. You edited mm. Changeland. I did. Uh, yes. A film directed by Seth Green, which I have got to talk to Seth uh, and producer Corey Musa over on my other show, the Film and Water podcast. That's a film I enjoyed a lot. I'm fascinated. How does one get into film editing? Because it's not like a natural, 
you know, to, no, you could see kids being like, I want to be a movie director when I grow up. Very, I would imagine very, very few kids say, I want to edit someone else's work, you know? <laughs> well, my answer is definitely a little bit uh, off to the peripheral side of like how one gets to editing. Um, and in fact, I would say, like I actually recently talked to a young woman who's about to graduate from film school who knows she wants to be an editor. And I think I... You know, it's true. I, I think one of the reasons why people don't think of editing as uh, the place to start is because of the way we have skewed the importance to directing. And obviously, a director's imprint is everywhere in the filmmaking. But the editor is the person who's literally every single person's work is in that person's hand or in those people's hands. Sometimes it's a team. And, you know, and so I think part of it... Uh, is just PR. I actually was reading at some point, I, and I, I can't actually tell you exactly when I read this, but it was in the last few years where one of the things that happened um, is that when, when in the history of film, editors at the beginning actually were very important and acknowledged as such. And then over time, I, you know, the role of director got more PR, literally, and became the primary role. Um, and, and of course, like you, you, it's, there are many reasons why that happened. And I'm, you know, I'm very excited to be directing in the future. So it's not that I'm downplaying the role of director, but I think the um, collaborative space with the editor is not something that has uh, a full, understanding of most people coming into film. And so one of my, as I've shared with you already it, before, you know, I'm excited to just be a cheerleader for editing in general and for, and the importance of editors, because I've also been a producer and, um, and actually came into editing more because I was producing and I uh, spent a lot of time in edit rooms and I already, you know, like my, my understanding of story uh, has been pretty refined. I actually got into filmmaking because I was interested in the writing side. And what's so funny to me is that I've done, I've, I've experienced how you put together story from all these other different roles. And I would argue that story is present in literally everything that happens on a set, everything that happens in post. It's like when it's a collaborative space, it is everyone coming together to put together details that ultimately you know, end up in the final film. And so I, so editing for me was actually by way of producing. And then um, I was story producing a documentary series called The Chair uh, for Chris Moore um, that Corey Musa happened to be in along with, uh, you know, many other people um, who were, I don't know if you're familiar with The Chair, but it was, yes. uh, you know, where you're watching two novice directors right. direct the same script, although they've completely rewritten the script. So my role in that was to sit in the edit bays with the editors and um, forge a story over a 10 hour series from literally thousands of hours of footage. Um, and that's, so Corey Musa knew that I had a post-production background better than most people did. And when he was producing Changeland, um, you know, I knew he was making it and they had gone off to Thailand to start filming. And it actually wasn't until they were back and he called me to ask me if I might have any editors to suggest. And it, it, 
finally he was like, well, Elizabeth, would you be interested in editing this? And I was like, well, you're, you're one of the few people who know to even ask me that. Uh, and of, you know, of course I would be interested in editing with Seth, um, who I had absolutely no connection to at that moment. Um, other than it being this fascinating possibility. And I, and actually at that moment I was in New York city working on a rock opera that I had co-written the book for. Like, I was in a totally different world. <laughs> that was a random series uh, of words. <laughs> yes, trust me. It was it was a very random week, actually. So I, I got that call from Corey on a Wednesday. Um, they sent me uh, the script and some scenes on Thursday. I spoke to Seth on the phone on Friday. And we happened to have this one song in common I, a Lord song, 400 Lux, that I had been thinking of for my own, a short that I had been making. And I thought to myself before I went into the phone call with Seth, if Seth brings up that, if that's, if that's the actual Lord song that they're referring to in the script, then I know we'll be able to work together. Mm. And sure enough, it was that song. And, you know, and Seth and I had a great conversation. And then, so that was Friday. And then Saturday, there was a final performance of the rock opera. And then half an hour later, Corey called me and he's like, Elizabeth, we want to hire you. Um, and we need you to fly to LA tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> so I, and it was like one of those things where life just lines up and I flew back to LA and I met Seth the next day. <laughs> it was like, and suddenly there I was. And I, I have to say it was really quite an extraordinary experience and I uh, you know I, I when when Quentin Tarantino and Sally Menke talk about their collaborative space like I feel so fortunate in that I ended up in such a wonderful collaborative space with Seth and you know and what Corey understood was that I have a personality that would have fit in with the requirements of Seth's schedule and you know editing uh, with Seth meant that we were editing inside the studios of Stupid Buddy, where they're full-time making animation stuff. And so, um, you know, I was, it was a very unique scenario. And um, I mean, every, every film is a unique scenario, but this was, it was just so specific. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm now rambling about getting into that, that edit room with Seth, but that's what got me there. Um, my, my path to editing was that I knew I loved editing. I knew I loved editing from film school. I, I went through the, but I went through the producing program at USC. And so I was on a different track um, than that. And it was just that I kept being in edit rooms and I kept, you, you acquire the skills even by osmosis, you know, when you're sitting there, at least I did. And so um, when it was finally in my hands, it was a very natural transition for me. I, and, um, you know, and it's, it's just, oh my gosh. And then the more I do it, the more I'm like, oh my God, this is such an amazing thing to be able to do. <laughs> who among us hasn't gotten a call to collaborate with Seth Green in the middle of writing their <laughs> rock opera? <laughs> who hasn't experienced that? I mean, seriously, no, it was, <laughs> it was pretty, I mean, then, I mean, if we're on this topic for me, what was so wild about like the next two weeks of my life was that I, you know, it was, I kind of knew everyone who was involved in the sense of I knew who they were, but I'm sitting there staring, like I have a week to familiar size, uh, familiar, familiarize myself with this footage. And I'm, I, like I meet Seth and then he has to go away for something. And, and so I have a week to just jump into things. And 
And then like a week later, he's like, so I think Patrick Stump is going to write the score for us. <laughs> mm. oh, boy. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, and then because, um, uh, because we're in the middle of the Stupid Buddy Studios, I like literally a hundred feet away from where they do the voiceover work recordings. The most amazing thing about this edit space was that um, just a crazy number of high profile people would just stop in to say hi to Seth. <laughs> and while I'm in the mid- middle of the edit and, and this is not a big edit bay. And so it was, you know, one of the requirements of this particular um, edit was that I had to be okay and comfortable with the fact that my schedule was uh, flexible to the number of people coming in and out of the edit bay, Uh, you know, because Seth also co-runs a very, very successful (laughs) animation studio at the same time, and is also the voice in a number of shows. Um, Right. And, and then not having to stumble every time someone famous walked in the room, um, (laughs) you know, which could be overwhelming for a few people. And it's, I, you know, so it was, and that's where the producer side of me uh, was very comfortable and that I would sort of, I had this rule where if I turned my chair around and was facing everyone else, I was a producer. And if I turned back towards the computer, I was an editor. (laughs) And that way I knew which role I was in at which moment. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I like I like that a lot. Uh, so I do want to ask you about collaborating with a director because again, I have some stuff about when I was growing up watching movies uh, and and how it all worked. But before before we get to that, I do need to wax your moviola a little bit about your work on Changeland. Sure, uh, because I really enjoyed that movie, and it was one of those things where um, you know, peek behind the scenes a little bit. Corey Musa, uh, you know, proposed to me, hey. Uh, do you want to have me and Seth on your show to talk about this movie that we're working on? And I was like, wow, that sounds great. But I hadn't seen the movie yet. And it's one of those <laughs> things where I'm like, well, okay, what happens if I don't like sure. the movie that much? And then I'm really kind of having to BS my way through it. And I don't want to have to do that. But I really loved Changeland. I'm so um, glad. My fiance and I watched it together. And I said this to Seth on the Film and Water episode. where like, she's a tough critic. And if a film bores her, the phone comes out and, <laughs> and I always know how much she likes a movie if the phone is not out and the phone never came out once during Changeland. But one of the things that I really liked about it, and again, it sounds like I'm being uh, you know, fake because I happen to have the editor on my show, but I really was impressed with the editing of it because it is a, in a lot of places, a meditative kind of languid movie. Yes. Clearly yeah. on purpose. It is trying to, uh, weave a certain spell. It's not just action, action, action of oh, Seth jumping off the, not jumping off the rock, and then they're on the boat. And you know, there. I mean, there are some action scenes to it, but a lot of it is this kind of lang- you know, slow, purposeful, meditative pace. And I've seen a lot of other movies that try to achieve that, but just it's just boring. Mm-hmm. Like it's they can't they can't crack that, and it's just. Oh, you know, you say, well, nothing happens in this movie. And they're like, well, that's because you're not getting it. Or you're not, you know, you, <laughs> you, you want everything to be like a Marvel movie. And it's like, no, it's just, there's nothing happening. I'm not getting any information from what I'm looking uh, on, on the screen versus you can have slow movies that are never, that are nevertheless uh, relaying something through that slower pace, which keeps you involved. 
And I yeah. thought Changeland really achieved that, which that it, 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 yeah, <laughs> it, it, it weaved that spell that kept me interested, even though there were long scenes of people just kind of sitting and staring and contemplating. And to me, <laughs> that's really hard to do. That is really hard. So all credit to you and to Seth for being able to make that work. Thank you. I, yeah, it, I mean, I think the, I can't, I, I listened to your podcast uh, with uh, Corey and Seth, um, but I can't remember uh, what Seth said about this, but it was, so that was definitely one of the biggest challenges of uh, the storytelling is the pace of the film until the last third uh, is specifically sort of languid in that you're Mm -hmm. hanging out, you know, he's hanging out with a friend and dealing with some with a lot of internal uh, stuff going on. And right, because Seth's uh, character is very quiet. Is he's very not, is he's not going on quiet. speeches telling you how he's feeling. No, and I and so a lot of the edit was getting those scenes into good shape to start with, where they just feel like they're generally flowing. And then once the whole film came together, it became clear where it was possible to cut things because they felt redundant. Um, so part of the success of, or the goal of making those quiet films feel like something you continue to want to watch is that they're not repeating information for you so that mm-hmm. you're not like, yeah, I get it. You know, let's get to the next one. Um, so for instance, there's, you know, the, the hike to the waterfall. Um, I think we honestly took out, like a solid three to four minutes of dialogue mm-hmm. there because we realized it was revisiting a lot of things that had already been said. And, um, you know, and then in the refinement of the edit to get it to something that felt like as you're watching it, you're not uh, feeling bored, hopefully, um, is you, there's something about the rhythm of uh, the edit and, and the performance that is hard to articulate, you know, as I'm talking about it, but I know it's, that's really where it becomes um, the rhythm of performance. It's something I've actually become a little bit obsessed by, which is like understanding how to make it possible for the viewer to watch something that isn't necessarily a big action sequence, but feels like um, it's moving. So there's a flow to it that you're willing to just go with. And you know, I, we, I hope that we got there. It's, um, it is tough because it is, that first part is quiet. It's helped by the fact that there's so much beautiful footage and Patrick mm. Ruth did such a beautiful job. Um, but I, you know, that was the goal was to make sure that like you got the information that you needed and then we moved on and, um, and that there were enough charming moments in the middle, uh, you know, that there was a chance to laugh, uh, and and keep that going too for you so yeah i'm really glad to hear that i know one of the challenges is that you know seth is known for especially through robot chicken uh, through a much bigger like uh kind of humor and so this film is quiet and not like that at all yeah (laughs) yeah completely i know a lot of people watch it expecting one thing and getting something totally different and so they weren't quite sure how to receive it but um yeah i i'm so glad to hear that uh, you and your fiance reacted in that way. Cause that was, I mean, we worked on that and we worked, we were really thoughtful about it. 
Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, when I was younger and I would watch movies and, you know, obviously when I was a kid, I didn't pay attention to the credits, you know, outside of maybe a couple of the stars. Maybe I had an, an appreciation of, of what a director might have done. And then as I got older and it sort of dawned on me that, OK, people different. These are uh, this guy worked on the costumes and this woman did the score. And, uh, you know, you, you saw all these names. And then I started to realize that often is not the editor was different than the director. I will admit that seemed that seemed crazy to me because I was like, wait, how could someone else edit what the director shot? Because doesn't doesn't the director know in their head what they want any given scene to feel like? And how can they possibly how can someone else then come in and edit this thing? It doesn't doesn't the director need to be essentially the author, the final author of the piece? Now, of course, that's often first of all, it, it's not realistic because then the film will never get done to have one person do both things because obviously you really can't be shooting and editing. I mean, I know it's been done, but it's really hard. But like, I, I'd love to ask you about like, you know, you talked about Seth hiring you and you guys had to obviously kind of get to know each other a little bit, but like how, and now you said you've directed two and you produced, how do you, what are the conversations you're having with an editor about this project? Because you obviously have to, on some level have to see eye to eye to what the piece is Otherwise, it's not going to work because if you cut, if you shoot footage that is meant to be, uh, you know, full of tension and scary, and then the editor, you know, edits it and edits the performances to where it's funny, that's that's not going to work because they're making a different, they're editing a different movie than the one that was shot. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there were a bunch of different layers to that on on Changeland in particular um, because, of course, Seth is also in the film um, and basically everyone in the film with just a couple of exceptions of let's say local actors were already very dear people to Seth. And so one of the, one of the really sensitive parts of my conversations with Seth was about, you know, being able to evaluate performance, both his and his friends performance and not just friends, but like truly some of the most important people to Seth. Um, And I, you know, so, so I really had to listen. Um, and, and so that first, the first couple of weeks, uh, was me just taking in everything. Um, and then, you know, and <laughs> I can tell you there's, there's only one real moment where the first time I delivered an edit, Seth really was like, Nope, I wasn't. It. <laughs> it was, and it was, and it was literally the very first thing that I was asked to do while he was away that first week was to, put together a first pass on the fights or on the boxing scenes um, that he's in, in particular. And uh, we originally, actually, I think we're going to use a Beastie Boys song there. And so it was this really aggressive, like felt like a music video in the way that I perceived it. Um, and I, I hadn't yet seen all the footage. So I was, I literally was just coming in and looking at this uh, boxing footage. And that's, that's the kind of edit that I had the least amount of experience with. And I, so I put together something that felt really fun to watch. Like Corey loved it. I remember. <laughs> and then, and then I showed it to Seth and Seth was like, Oh my God, <laughs> totally. Like there's a whole narrative within that boxing match um, that I had not remotely tuned into. And, you know, and then we talked about it and then I got it and then we, and then we got there. Um, and so what it was, was Seth also being totally willing to say that to me. And I wasn't going to take it personally. Like we were still getting to know each other. And then, um, you know, and then within just a few weeks, cause actually our edit schedule was pretty fast. Um, 
you know, I remember Seth turning to me and, and saying, you know, he was realizing that he, we, we kept watching edits together and he didn't have a lot of notes because I was, was putting together scenes that um, felt right to him, you know, and it, it didn't mean that there wasn't still stuff to refine, but that I, w I was um, finding the right rhythm, you know, that he was responding to. And, um, and then as that progressed and our trust, you know, his trust in me progressed and, um, and I felt more confident in taking a few more risks about what might, help a scene so I think as you guys discussed in the podcast with them the um the scene with the bartender where he's just standing totally still and mm -hmm. he you know they're at the bar and and I think as Seth acknowledged in that you know I was like why don't we try and add more humor to this and also not have to totally rely on that shot since I knew it wasn't exactly what Seth wanted um and cut it to a you know, all these other couples that are like walking on mm -hmm. the sand and clearly having a blissful time while poor, you know, says character is, is just beside himself. So, um, you know, so that was, it was a very, um, like Seth really gave me space to try things and I really listened, um, and looked for a way to, um, work that was compatible with you know the fact that he was watching his own performance he was watching um the people he loved perform and uh, he was doing that on a schedule where there were so many other demands during the day and um and we got there so i hmm. uh, yeah let's <laughs> I think I think that answers the question. I think I might have forgotten the question. Was, <laughs> was there were there any moments that that uh, when you were working with him that that you sort of I don't want to I almost want to use the phrase won an argument because it, it presupposes <laughs> there was an argument at all. But like, was there any was there any sequences were there any sequences that you worked on that he initially was like that's not what I want and you were able to kind of advocate for why where you were coming at coming from for any particular scene? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think. Um, it's so funny because I can give you an answer that is such a super specific detail. Um, it's not even a full scene. It's literally a moment. And it's when he and Brecken have just arrived in Thailand and they're in the taxi. Um, and that sequence, uh, we actually shot pickups for so that we could more fully communicate that they had arrived in Thailand and that they were on their way to this hotel. And um, there's this one little moment where, Seth looks down I and he, like we see him up against the taxi window and his eyes go down and I I really wanted that moment because it just showed that this was a character who you know had some sadness going on um and he didn't he, it wasn't his instinct to show himself doing that and I <laughs> but it stayed so I can so I can answer that to that degree of detail like okay. I was, you know it was it was like little moments like that and then um there were at the end uh I collapsed time a little bit there were a few more scenes or a couple more scenes in the um once they're at the reggae bar I and so I showed him something where I I cut some scenes down and then turned it more into a collage you know, and that, and that was a scenario where every time you 
cut down a scene for someone who's also an actor, they are sensitive to the other actors in the scene not getting as much screen time. Mm -hmm. So every time I cut down a scene, I knew that Seth was weighing (laughs) the (laughs) fact that I had just taken his friends off the screen. Um, (laughs) You know, not, and and of course he, he had the macro picture, but it was, I knew that that was, there was an emotional process to this. So, um, you know, so it's stuff like that. And it was, there is, uh, yeah, what I'm thinking of is, it's so funny, it's more like things that he let me try and then we both agreed weren't a good idea. <laughs> so, but that's just as, um, that's just as valuable, though, that he, <laughs> yes, that he gave yes. you the space to say, try it. I mean, the yeah. worst you can do is you look at it and you go, oh, wait, no, no this is not, yeah, this yeah. doesn't work the way I thought it would. So I mean, um, that's, the, that's the benefit of being able to, to do that. And before anybody has to see it and really judge it, you for yourself can say, Oh yeah, I thought that might work, but now that I see it, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was. Um, I mean, I think as any person who works with Seth will tell you, he's very generous in uh, the process, and thankfully, Seth is also someone. Even though technically speaking, this was his first time directing a feature, uh, he knows the whole process, and so a lot of people get hung up if they don't have decent sound already in the edit or if the visuals aren't colored even a little bit um, because it can, some of the stuff you don't see in, in its full form until it has better color or until the sound is more um, processed. And he is, he's able to take that leap. And so it made actually the edit move faster because I didn't have to worry about presenting him with something that um, was more polished but took away time from the edit, um, as if that makes sense. Yeah, so. no, I, I totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, there's a great quote. Uh, this is, again, this is one of the things where I started really learning about editing and even understanding what it was and that it was a distinct art form, uh, mm-hmm. was a quote from Stanley Kubrick. Uh, in a 1987, I think, interview he did uh, with Rolling Stone, I guess he was promoting uh, or at least whatever Kubrick did in, in terms of promotion, uh, Full Metal Jacket. But he has this quote about editing. If you don't mind, I'd like to read it to you because I just find it sure. really fascinating and very instruc- instructive about the collaboration, about what how editing works. And he says, uh, when he says regarding movies, he says, everything else comes from something else. Writing, of course, is writing. Acting comes from the theater. Cinematography comes from photography. Editing is unique to film. You can see something from different points of view almost simultaneously, and it creates a new experience. You see a guy hanging a picture on a wall. Suddenly you see his feet slip. You see the chair move. You see his hand go down and the picture fall off the wall. In that split second, a guy falls off a chair, and you can see it in a way that you could not see it any other way except through editing. TV commercials have figured that out. Leave the content out of it, and some of the most spectacular examples of film art are in TV commercials. The Michelob commercials. I'm a pro football fan, and I have videotapes of the game sent over to me, commercials and all. Last year, Michelob did a series, just impressions of people having a good time. And the editing, the photography was some of the most brilliant work I've ever seen. Forget what they're doing, selling beer, and it's visual poetry. Incredible eight-frame cuts. And you realize that in 30 seconds, you've created an impression of something rather complex. If you could ever tell a story, something with content, using that kind of visual poetry... You could handle vastly more complex and subtle material. And I, you know, again, I read that when I was a teenager and I was just, he really was able to sort of crystallize it in a way that I'd never thought about. And when he, when I read that quote, I think about his movie, Barry Lyndon, 
Mm-hmm. Um, oh my you've, gosh. You've yes. seen Barry Lyndon? Oh, yes. In fact, I'm planning to rewatch that for something else. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I watched that movie when I, again, I was working at the video store and I was younger and I, I will admit I did not get it. I was like, this is so <laughs> <Sure>. boring. <laughs> you know, I was, I was like the shining. Yes. And, and uh, clockwork orange. Yes. And 2001. Yes. What is this? Why, why, why is Ryan O'Neill taking 20 minutes to walk across? Uh, why is you it know? so dark? <laughs> why is it so dark? Why is everything lit by candles? And then I watched it, you know, like 10 years later and I had haha grown up a little bit and I had read more interviews about what he was trying to achieve. And all of a sudden, all the information that he was trying to convey with his editor through that incredibly slow pace, all that information that was in that film that I missed in my early 20s, I all picked it. I picked it all up in my 30s. I went, Mm. oh, okay, (laughs) I get what they're trying to achieve by making it this three hour thing where... On paper, it seems like not a lot is happening, but it, it, there's a ton happening going on. And so the reason I brought that, 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 that kind of long quote up is, again, when you're talking with the editor and, and getting back to sort of Sally Menke, I mean, everyone talks about Tarantino, the writer. And I think in a lot of ways, he almost thinks of himself as more of a writer than a director. I mean, he just put out a book, uh, a novel based on one of his own movies. I mean, how it's so hard to judge whether a film is well edited because obviously you're not supposed to notice it. If you're noticing cuts, that's probably antithetical to the idea. You're supposed to just get caught up in the flow of it. But, you know, judging it from, again, from the outside, because you didn't know her and you don't don't know the movie, you just only can watch the movies. Was there a point when you're watching these things and you're able to sort of in your mind sort of say, wow, yeah, that I could see that that's more manky than it is the writing and the, the, the acting? I don't know. I don't know if that's even a fair question to ask. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, that's, I, um, it's a great question. I, because also uh, speaking from experience, it's so fascinating to hear what people, then like when people have watched Changeland and then they've told me how much they loved the editing, but what they noticed about the editing was of course something that I was like, Oh, that actually has nothing to do with the way I, I actually look at that scene. Um, mm. So people get very stuck on the visuals um, as the only way to understand what an editor did. Right. Great I, cut there and stuff like that. Right. And, and sometimes that's totally true. And so for instance, um, one of the ways that I thought would be fun to talk about Sally Mickey's work specifically in the context of this podcast is if we look at Peacock, which is technically her last editing credit, but it's also a shared editing credit. So I can't speak directly to how much she participated in the final edit. Um, and Inglorious Bastards is what directly precedes that. And um, if you compare the footage of the two movies, I, so I've watched both of them. And one of the ways to think about editing is how successfully the film conveys the goal of the footage. So for instance, Peacock um, very much sets up, uh, uh, it's like a still image. um, I'm totally not thinking of the right phrase right now, but it's, um, there's some moving shots, but it's about seeing these characters uh, inside, you know, this, um, this small town uh, and seeing their inner turmoil, at least the way I perceived it. Um, and you get to Inglorious Bastards and whew, you've got these camera moves <laughs> that are like, you know, 
you're still for a really long time and then suddenly the camera is moving and then it's moving behind someone and then it's revealing the you know the um, room in a totally different way and then it's moving up above and I and so that what that means is that the choreography inherent to the way Quentin Tarantino shoots at least that story was something that the editor Sally Menke had to be um, sensitive to and um, those are hard when it when a camera movement is that elaborate it's hard to cut into that um, because you you really are then completely changing the rhythm of a scene um, if you mess with the camera movement. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that is available. Like with editing, you literally can change any, any frame, um, but you don't want to necessarily, you know? And so I, I was really struck by the kind of footage she would have been watching in the last two films she worked on, um, going from something that, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino is known for just these ultra-violent uh, kinds of things. And then these really long, dialogue-heavy scenes um, that presumably are are building the tension into the next round of violence. And um, But in those dialogue-heavy scenes, there's actually a lot of camera stuff happening. And so then I just, I was just thinking about what our headspace would have been in, in, um, analyzing that footage. And of course, by that point, she, she knows Tarantino extremely well. So they're, they're both presumably in a, um, real simpatico kind of conversation. And then we come to Peacock, uh, which as far as I can tell, uh, would have been a first time director as to, or, or not an established director. And, um, and we've got these really classic frames, um, but all the action with the exception of, you know, like the train arriving, um, is very internal, uh, or is in like these really subtle ways that people are, um, frustrated with each other. Oh man. Know? Yeah. I mean, oh <laughs> boy. How, I mean, you know what? Let, let me, I'll give a little bit of the plot of Peacock so people know what we're talking about because okay. most people have not seen this movie. I, mean, I never even heard of it until I we did research for this episode. So it's set in the 1950s, Nebraska, and there's a man named John played by Cillian Murphy who lives a quiet, solitary life working in a, in a bank as a clerk tucked away in a small office. One day, a train car derails and crashes into his backyard, almost killing Emma, who also lives there. This draws all sorts of unwanted attention to John and his wife, Emma. What no one in the town of Peacock realizes is that Emma does not exist. She is John's alternate personality who exists only to take care of John. Soon, various members of the town get involved in John slash Emma's life, Mayor Ray Krill and his wife Fanny show up asking John if they can host a political rally in John's backyard using the wrecked train as a backdrop. John wants nothing to do with this, but in his identity as Emma, he agrees. Complicating things even further is the arrival of Maggie and her two-year-old son. She's been receiving child support from John's mother, but the money stopped when his mother passed away the previous year. Eventually, the dual realities of John and Emma get harder and harder to reconcile, leaving Emma to take things into her own hands. So as I mentioned, John slash M is played by Killian Murphy. Maggie is played by Elliot Page. Susan Sarandon plays Fanny. Josh Lucas is Officer Tom McGonagall. Bill Pullman is Edmund, uh, John's boss. Keith Carradine is Mayor Ray Krill. And Graham Beckel uh, plays Connor. And I'm glad that you're making these comparisons of those two films because I had not thought to do that, to look at it. Uh, back. First of all, it's amazing that a first-time director, a Peacock, landed Sally Menke. That seems yes. like, wow, yes, what, a, what a coup. The producer in me was like, 
where did all these sound? <laughs> how yeah. did all these people sign up for this film? Yeah, these are big stars. I mean, these are yeah. all name actors. Bill Pullman, in particular, I feel like is wasted in this movie. He's a fine actor, and he's given like two scenes, and that, yeah. that's it. But yeah. it's interesting to compare the two films in that yes, Inglorious Bastards is is almost in times manic in its editing. I mean, good lord, there's a there's a there's a part in that movie where they literally cut the footage from another movie. Yes. <laughs> you know, to, to illustrate a point. And then there's like the cutaway of uh, the one Nazi. I think it's, is it Herman Goering having, you know, kind of rough sex with a yes, his, with his the pro- French interpreter, the French girl who does it, who clearly looks bored out of her mind because <laughs> yes. she's looking away from him. You can guess what that means. And then you get to Peacock and yeah, I mean, it's almost like the, the film is a series of still paintings because yes. everybody in that movie is so, especially John slash Emma, so reserved and so minimal. And there's conversations between uh, Elliot playing Maggie and John where they're, it's like, these are two people that apparently had had in a relationship and had a child at some yes. point, And yet they talk like strangers. And so it's amazing to me that, that Sally Mankey had that ability. I mean, that's what made her so good is to take those two styles back to back like that and make it, make it work. I mean, you could argue, I didn't think Peacock was that great of a movie, really. Uh, but the reasons for that have nothing to do with Sally Mink. Yeah. You know, and, and although, you know, also it's interesting because in an interview that I listened to that Sally Mickey did, she, someone asked her kind of a similar question in that, you know, how does it feel to work with first time directors when you're working with Quentin Tarantino and actually some other amazing directors, you know, she also worked with Oliver Stone and yep, heaven and earth. Um, yeah. I, and she answered, well, that's the editor's job. And I've now had enough uh, editing experience in so many different spaces. So I, you know, I, I also work on some Shark Week shows, um, Air Jaws, <laughs> the one with the breaching sharks that like, I mean, people go crazy over these shows and it's so funny. Um, and it literally could not be further away than my work <laughs> on Changeland. I, and I have a very different role because that's also... Uh, a reality documentary space where I'm helping structure footage in a very early form of the show. Um, the lead editor is this uh, great editor named Rob Henry, who I've worked with a lot. And, and, um, but that's like, that is its own machine where you, your, or my role in that, you know, is very much about being a part of uh, building up the show to the point where it can be polished. And, um, and then on, on in a narrative space, what's so fascinating about the editing experience, at least from my point of view, is that you're also, because you're editing performance, um, unless a director is saying concretely, you must use this take, I, you're in a position where you're inside performance as well. I mean, I felt like I was. And it was actually the most jarring part of having to move back and forth between like, Oh, there are other people in the edit bay and now I'm back in the footage, which is to evaluate performance. You have to get inside the performance a little bit. And, um, and so it's really fun. I mean, this is what's really cool about editing is that you can go, it's one of the few collaborative spaces where you can go to completely different worlds Um from one project to the next and, and you're still playing the role of editor. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's really cool. And the thing that I really enjoy about it is being in a position to work with directors 
um, who are very different from each other and seeing what becomes important for them. And, and some people want things to move really fast and some people want to just hang out there as long as we can justify hanging out there. Um, you know, and, and I, and that's from the point of view of refining my own storytelling skills and of working in entertainment it's a real privilege to be able to work on such different kinds of projects, um, at least from my perspective. I, but it can be hard. It, you really do have to be willing to just jump into a whole new pool, so to speak, you know, it's, um, and it can be jarring sometimes. You have to wonder if maybe Sally Minky didn't pick Peacock partly because it was just such a drastic change from what she'd been doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, just so different from, I mean, this is, that's not a movie that, that uh, Quentin Tarantino ever would have made. Um, and again, <laughs> the stuff that I didn't like about it's, I think it's a, I think it's an okay movie. Um, it, I, I think that uh, there's a conceit to it where um, no one in the town can see that uh, Killian Murphy's character, John is clearly dressed as Emma. Yes. And, and that I will, I hate to like sort of disregard an entire movie based on one piece of, of of sort of one detail but to me the idea that none of these people in the town could figure out that this is who they're that they're talking to john and he's in a wig and a dress yeah none of them figure it out to me made everyone in the town look stupid and and, and i couldn't get past that i was like somebody has to possibly how can how can none of these people be like wait a minute i john is that you they keep thinking it's it's his way but again none of that is Sally Mankey's fault, obviously, you know, no, I mean, she's, no. you know, she's only got to do, the editor only has to do with, uh, with the footage that they, that they have. Now, regarding Inglorious Bastards, there is something about that movie I wanted to mention because it is to me specific, specific to editing. The, the final sequence of that film where Shoshana uh, springs the trap yeah. on the Nazis and it is time. It has to be, you know, perfectly timed because they, she has to lock the doors at the same time that the, the film is set on fire and yada, you know, it's, it's clockwork. I have seen Glorious Bastards, I don't know, probably half a dozen times at this point. Every time I watch that sequence, my heart starts to race because I'm scared she's not going to pull it off. Yep, yep. Even though I've seen the movie six times. Yeah. I, and I'm like, how did, how did, how did Quarantino write it? And how did Sally Makey edit it in a way that I am still nervous about how this is going to come off when I already know how it's going to come off. I, that to me, that is amazing. It's that's like magic. It is magic. And, um, you know, I, I think what's interesting about evaluating that, uh, is that they've, it also means the entire film has set you up for that. Uh, mm -hmm. so that the inner I'm, I mean, I'm not speaking authoritatively here. I'm speaking in the way that I've, you know, receiving it, but, uh, the because there is we've now seen a few scenes where things have not gone well you know like when they're down in the when they try and meet um i oh my gosh the oh, when they're down in that name. bar yeah, yeah yes yeah. And they're down in the bar Kruger, and think, yeah yes and don't and things don't go well and so you know <laughs> that it's possible you know that yeah. it's possible for things to not go well already um so we've been set up to believe that and then the fact that you can watch it over and over again I is it's also the beauty of like everything coming together in like the score that score is wonderful in how it mixes together different styles <laughs> of music 
um, so that, you know, we're in a Western, but also a classical piece at the same time. Um, and then, you know, periodically we cut away to sentimental romantic moments. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable and it's, um, but you have been set up to get there. Um, and I, you know, and that's also what's really cool is that people evaluate often and edit by virtue of the one scene. And what I love about feature length storytelling is that you have the whole film to um, get people to manipulate people, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to set you up for understanding what the rules are. Um, and I, yeah, they do such a good job with that. And then also what's amazing about those final scenes is that there's still humor in them, even though a bazillion people are dying. Like, <laughs> this is, this is why I both love and hate Quentin Tarantino because I, I end up watching these films that are just like so violent um, and so many people are dying in truly bloody ways. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude, this is so well done. <laughs> I'm laughing if somebody's laughing. face gets shot off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, like, yes, when they shoot each other in the, in the booth, in the um, projection booth, you know, yeah. I'm like, this is <laughs> somehow this turned into a romantic moment. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. So, um, yeah, you know, I I think I the once you've come to the end, you've been set up to receive it that way. So I and then the fact that you can watch it over and over again, you know, I mean, that's just I music helps a lot with that too. Actually, that's where as I was watching that film again, I was I was trying to imagine some of those scenes without the music underneath them, um, and I you know, it's always amazing to revisit some of that stuff when you don't have sound, as you know. So, mm. um, so yeah, I, I, you know, and I, I wanted to set the listeners up also. One thing about Peacock is to just as a shorthand is that it kind it does its best, at least again, from my <laughs> point of view, um, there are a lot of echoes of psycho in it. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and so that's what that film is going after. I, but then as you point out there, there is just this one huge conceit that is hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. I just, (laughs) again, all the performances are good. It's a, it's a, it's an attractive looking film. Uh, and again, you know, and it's, and it's short. I mean, it's like a, it's a thriller at like 95 minutes. So, I mean, it doesn't waste a lot of time, but it's just, I, yeah. I, and again, it's, that's my own fault. I mean, cause you know, if you if you love a movie, you can get over its deficits or its inconsistencies because it doesn't matter. You love it anyway. And if you don't love a movie, you can pick it apart. You know, you can just do it. And it's like, well, there's lots of movies I love that I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But I don't care because I love the movie. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't yes, matter. So totally. it's I, I was not I was I will admit I was watching Peacock because it was Sally Minky and I was trying my in a weird way, trying to almost like analyze the editing, which is a horrible way to look, watch a movie. You can't, you're supposed to do it that way. You're supposed to just watch it and let the story roll, roll over you. Um, but you said something about setting the audience up for the ending. Yeah. And of course that movie does, because it leads to this huge conflagration where we finally get to see what we want, which is a bunch of Nazis set on fire, which is awesome. <laughs> right. um, you know, if only. And, and, but as as someone who has edited things, whether it's Shark Week stuff or or Changeland, yeah. 
when you're editing any given scene, are you trying to make that scene sort of the best possible version of the footage you've got and each scene exists in its own universe and it's not really kind of related to any other given scene? Like, would you ever edit something in a different way because you know it's going to set up something else later on? Or yes. do, or is it just kind of, it's a everything is exists in its own little thing and it's got to be the best it is. And hopefully then it's the greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. I mean, it's a, there's a duality to the answer. Um, the, when you're first putting assemblies together, uh, you know, you're taking what looks like the best footage um, and uh, putting together like a sketch, you know, a sketch of the whole film. And then as you figure out some things uh, that did or did not work uh, in production, then you maybe make different choices about what one scene was going to be to begin with. And I'm trying to think of some specific examples in uh, a change land that could help. Almost like you were talking about with the boxing scene where you were trying to make the boxing scene a certain way, having no context for the rest of the film. Yes, exactly. And once you saw the context, you're like, oh, I could see why he didn't want it this way. But you didn't know that because it was the first thing you were seeing. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, and then there were subtleties that came out, you know, the scene where um, Seth is deciding to jump or not off the jumping rock. Um, We went back into that scene. That was one of the later scenes that we polished uh, and actually ended up using some uh, heads and tails of footage and some outtakes to help find some little details to extend the feeling in that. And we wouldn't have known, like, that's not what you do when you start. You don't look for the outtakes necessarily um, or the heads and tails. I mean, sometimes you'll, it will be obvious, but there's a s- slow motion moment in there that I uh, came from some test footage actually. And I, and so you don't recognize some of the things that you might need until you have the whole thing up on its feet. Uh, and then you can see the pacing more thoroughly. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's very similar to the writing process where, you know, y- you both want the scene you're writing or the page you're writing to be the best version of your writing, but you're not actually going to, you're still going to do a whole revision process. Um, and once you, once you see the whole thing. And of course, once you get to the ending, you re, you know, you think about the en- the beginning again and the beginning of change land did change um, because we saw that we needed to set something up a little bit better. And I think as Seth shared in the podcast with you, um, you know, the ending originally had a whole next scene to it in the airport. Um, oh, right. And I, you know, and we realized that, we had a very elegant ending on that final frame. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's constantly changing. You, you start with, you start with the obvious choices um, and then you start to see what's not working. And then you do have to, then you, it's like literally every day you were just making, you know, a thousand more decisions um, and you just keep refining and keep refining and keep refining. Um, yeah. Did you ever put, yeah, it's like you could, you could have made the boxing sequence like Raging Bull, you know, and yes, then, but, yes. but then you're oh like, wait, well, why is the, ra- why is, why is the movie become Raging Bull in the middle of it? <laughs> totally, I don't understand. Totally. So have you ever put something together 
that you just thought was absolutely, man, this is mm, chef's kiss. This is as good as it's going to be. And then you go back to edit the rest of it. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this doesn't fit the way, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like by itself, it was great. But in context, mm, okay, maybe this, it's still great, but it doesn't fit the way it, right. I thought it it's might. It's not a part of the whole thing. Yeah, it's not a part of the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, it's f- funny. This is maybe a backwards answer to that. Um, I'm thinking of a short film that I worked on uh, where sometimes you you get that scene that's just, yes, the chef's kiss. And then that makes you realize how everything else isn't there yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so it's more like um, when you find the things that are working, it helps you see everything else that isn't working. And um and yes, of course, there, there are moments where you've, you know, put together something that feels really great, but it doesn't actually uh, fit the, the whole thing. So that actually would happen, for instance, on one of the Shark Week shows, um, specifically because my job is to put together specific scenes there. And I know that they're then going to be dropped into the full timeline and repolished to fit the look of the whole film, which I don't, which isn't going to happen until everything is already there. So, you know, I'll come up with like, oh, I think that was a really fun transition. And, you know, and then it has nothing to do with where we actually need the attention to be. <laughs> like <laughs> that fake seal is not actually where what we needed to see in that moment. <laughs> so, you know. Have uh, you ever yeah. seen, um, have you ever seen Reality Bites? The Ben Stiller yes, movie? Yes, there's, there's a scene in that, I'm just thinking about great editing, but there's a scene in that movie where he edits uh, uh, some footage that uh, Winona Ryder has shot and he sort of edits it in a kind of ham-handed cheesy way to kind of go for a cheap laugh and he kind of takes this nice footage that she shot and meant a lot to her and kind of makes it a goof and like she realizes oh he's not the man I thought he was because he couldn't and I thought wow here's a movie that is explaining why these two don't work as a couple because of editing choices that one of them has made I thought that's pretty that's a deep cut you know I was for, gonna say that's someone. some <laughs> It's definitely and very insider knowledge about yeah, what wow. it means to I be mean, editing. You know? Did he did he cheat on you? No, he just edited my film incorrectly. I had to get rid of him. Like, wow. And and people can really get upset about it <laughs> for good sure. reason, I think, actually. But uh, um, yeah, one of the things that, and I will say, when I heard, I remembered hearing at the heard and hearing at the time uh, when Sally Mankey passed away due to a hiking accident, just an absolutely tragic. Uh, accident that happened to her and it was you know this she went out hiking with a friend and it was apparently like 110 in Los Angeles and the friend said I gotta get out of here and then poor Sally Mickey just never got home she died of hypothermia just again it's just absolutely tragic for someone of that young an age to die she had a family and and had a husband she's married to a director Dean Pariseau uh, who directed Galaxy Quest and the most recent Bill and Ted movie I find it interesting that she never edited any of his films (laughs) Uh, maybe they, they thought the better, best way to keep a marriage together is to not do that. But I remembered hearing about it and I thought, oh, that's awful. That's just terrible. And I don't think at the time I'd even really realized that she had edited all of Tarantino's movies. I was like, oh, wow. And you went back and oh, look at that. She she did all of them. And I will say, I <laughs> I then saw his next film, Django Unchained, which was directed by Fred Raskin, who I believe was Minky's assistant. Yes, um, yes. To that point. So it makes sense that Fred Raskin would then be promoted and there's a scene in Django Unchained uh that I really don't like and it's near the end of the film and it to me it slows the film down 
and it was i remember thinking well this 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 scene wouldn't be here if sally Mankey had edited this thing <laughs> like i was literally thinking like and and this is not and i'm i'm totally copying this is not fair to mr raskin i'm sure he is a very talented filmmaker uh, editor yes. and and uh, he edited Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Hateful Eight, both films which I love. Yeah. And obviously Tarantino would not hire, you know, someone not talented to direct his film. But in that moment, I will say it took me out of the movie, and I I concocted this whole thing in my head of like, oh well, this new guy isn't able to like push back against yeah. Tarantino the way Sally yeah. Mankey might be able to, and that might be completely wrong. It might have been a scene that he liked or Tarantino to. But I, I will say it was the first time that I went, wow, if Sally Mankey had edited this, this scene with Quentin Tarantino doing a horrible Australian accent would not be in this movie because she would have been like, Quentin, we got to get rid of this. This movie's wrapping up. Why are we spending 20 minutes with you playing in Australia? It's just, you know, and I, I remember literally sitting in a the theater thinking, oh, man, I really miss Sally Mankey here. <laughs> It's not, I mean, we can't say for sure, but it's no. not an unfair assessment. I mean, that's, that is, you know, I, as they both acknowledge, that was one of her roles and, um, you know, and it's, I, yeah, it really is such a specific kind of collaboration. Um, cause it is, it is very personal, uh, you know, speaking to the reality bites joke and as, so even though, a direct, you know, as you work more in it, you do understand that so many choices, just, it's not a personal thing. It, it, there are so many agendas in play too. Um, but a director with a ton of experience is still going to have to go through a really vulnerable, it's a vulnerable journey making those decisions. Um, and, and again, I do think that is the part of editing that a lot of people just don't even know is, a part of the process um, if you're editing for someone else, you know, it's uh, not some directors are editing their own stuff and I, I might decide to do that myself, <laughs> but I, uh, it's to be in the role of an editor uh, on a feature length project uh, with someone who is, is really invested in that project. You're like the fundamental work of the day is to make sure the director can speak openly and it's a safe environment to have as a creative conversation as possible and where anything is possible. Um, because outside of that world, like as you know, as I'm sure you've heard, like, especially in Hollywood, like everyone has requirements of what they need from that, <laughs> from that project. And um, there has to be a space if at all possible and the editor is the person who, to facilitate it, um, where the director can just like take a deep breath for a second and um, get into some honest conversations about things, you know. And and that's uh, that is a significant part of professional editing um, that not everyone is aware of. Yeah, I read a a book, Walter Murch's book about uh, editing that he wrote, sure. and it's it's really more like a manual. Yes, that uh, one. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, as a layman like myself, I was like, okay, I don't really know what he's talking about a lot of the time here. <laughs> but I still found it interesting because I'm familiar with Walter Murch. But he had one little detail I thought was interesting that he said in Australia, he was down in Australia working with working on some film. And he said that 
um, in America, they refer to cuts. Everything's a cut. Yes. We cut to this. We cut to that. We cut back. We cover. But in Australia, they refer to it as a join. They use mm. the exact opposite language because in, in, the, in the eyes of Australians, you're joining two pieces of footage together. And yes. so I thought that was really interesting. That's sort of like a very positive way of saying, oh, we're joining the footage <laughs> as opposed to cutting the footage because cutting yeah. can be violent and painful. But joining sounds nice. You know? it's, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a great point of semantics. And, and there really is something to the idea of shaping it. And it's what that really communicates to the word join is that there's something active going on about like putting one thing next to another, you know, as you've already pointed out, um, editing is specific to filmmaking. Um, the choices of what to join together is the magic. Um, and I'm not actually just speaking visually. Once you join in sound and the music, like, yeah, I love this word join. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, it's really, it's, I was like, I was like, wow, that's, huh. Yeah, <laughs> like sort of stopped yeah. as in the middle of reading that. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, over on m- one of my other shows, Citizen Kane Minute, and oh, I'm yes, going through yeah. the movie five minutes at a time. I'm noticing how much of the transitions are sound based, yeah. not visual based. It's yeah. Wells is putting in clapping in one scene, and then the next scene, someone else is clapping, and that's the transition, not so yeah. much the visual. And I thought, well, that's really a good guy coming from radio. That makes total sense that he would think about that. Uh, oh, but, it's but, so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you, I, I don't want to put you on the, on the spot. And if you don't have an answer for this, it's fine. Cause we didn't go over this question, but I'm sort of fascinated by, <laughs> okay. yeah, I mean, do, do you have any particular, uh, I mean, you've been editing and you've been working in films for a while. Now. Do you have any particular uh, history or knowledge of like a scene in a movie where you're like, wow, that decision uh, really made that scene or really ruined that scene or something like that based on just stuff you read. And the reason I'm asking it is because I'm thinking of some examples where I listen to a lot of audio commentaries. Like I love listening to oh, yeah. filmmakers talk about, yeah. you know, I, I find it to be rewarding. Not, uh, I know some people are like, Oh, I don't want to know all the back stuff. I like all the back stuff. And the, the one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of is like Francis Coppola talks about in his commentary for the Godfather the scene in the hospital where Michael Corleone goes to visit his father, you know, Marlon Brando. And he realizes mm-hmm. that these mob guys are coming to kill him. And uh, Coppola realized that the scene wasn't working and it didn't have enough tension mm-hmm. and he couldn't figure out why. And he showed it to George Lucas, which is, you know, that's a nice friend to have to show you, <laughs> show your movie to George Lucas, Definitely. but he showed it to George Lucas and Lucas said, you need footage of just the hospital by itself just mm. it you know hallways or something to, to, to just build tension and Coppola is like well, we don't have any we don't have and we can't go back so we don't have any and Lucas literally went through the footage and then, of course this is in the old days when it's you know, literal film yes uh, yeah, I, have, have you ever have you worked with literal film yet or I has have. it all been digital oh you have no i mean my my i mean my active editing and entertainment career is all digital but when i first when i went through film school it was just in that transition point so i did actually my first experiences editing was on uh film wow okay yeah That's, but literally right. like the next year it went into digital wow <laughs> you got it in just so, under the wire it's like yeah. indiana jones pulling his hat as the door comes down yeah. but but he shows the film to Lucas and Lucas looks at all of it, like every single frame that was shot. Yeah, yeah. And he says, well, we've got some trims. And for anyone yeah. who doesn't know what a, tr- a trim is, a trim is basically like 
the stuff that is you record on the camera as you're like starting to shoot. Yeah. And they realized they had four or five frames and any given scene of just an empty hallway as, you know, Coppola was ready to say, you know, action. And then the, yep. the actors come and they just said, we're just going to take that and put it in. And that's going to, those are the scenes we're going to be, we're, we're, why are we looking down this hall? Are we expecting something? What's, is there somebody behind a door? And it was literal trims that helped make that scene work. And Coppola gives Lucas credit for saying, he you know, literally, this is stuff that would have been thrown away. Yeah. And it yeah. made the scene. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's, am- that's an amazing editing trick that they were able to do that. It, it is amazing. And, um, yeah, and similar actually to what I was describing with uh, the scene where Seth is deciding whether or not to jump. Like we we went into the equivalent of trims, uh, you know, to find, to just look to see what else we had. Um, and that's, once we were in the final process of refining Changeland, that's basically what I did is I revisited all the footage to look for anything else that I didn't even know we had to, that might help a scene, just one one little moment more. Um, and that did reveal a couple things. Um, and you do find these moments, uh, actually, uh, one of the things that that also showed up, showed up in that process was in the opening scene in the airport, uh, when Seth and Brecken are first meeting each other, there's a wide of the two of them sitting where a plane actually takes off. Um, and so I used that take as opposed to the take we had been using, cause there was a little bit more action in it. Um, mm. which is fun to watch. I, I have learned, like, it's really fun to cut action. So I can see why Sally Menke might have been enjoying this process, even though it gets really bloody and gory with Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> like it's, it is so fun to cut action. Um, but to answer your question also about scenes that really struck me, um, I can, I think I can answer that more as, like, I can tell you actually the scene where I understood the camera movement was really important. Um, and it actually was in Sally Potter's Orlando, um, which is a very artsy film, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen. Tilda Swinton, right? Yeah, Tilda Swinton. Yes, Tilda Swinton, um, early 90s, um, early to mid 90s. And there's a, there's a, like a, a romantic scene where the camera moves back and forth between the characters and it must be on a slider and it goes from one side to another. And when I watched it the first time, I just, I was just so conscious of that scene and the camera movement. And I, my whole conversation with myself at that moment wasn't like, oh my God, I just learned the importance of camera movement (laughs) in a film, but it's, it has stuck with me over time. And, um, and I've, I'm someone who really loves, I, what you can do with camera movement, both aggressively and subtly. And so Robert Altman, for instance, he is a master at these super subtle, camera movements um where it's moving and you just aren't even fully aware of it all the time i Mm. love watching his films for that reason because you just it's this you know as you're talking about how you watch some films and you're conscious that they can get boring because you're it's just people talking well one of the other ways that you can add action to the to the scene without actually doing anything more than you're just the camera's just moving ever so subtly so that there is literal action in the frame and it's, and it gets to, you know, you can then pick up on different things in the performance. So that kind of stuff is really fun for me to watch. Um, and then 
another friend of mine was recently bringing up the Kozlowski film Blue with me. And um, again, I'm making all these <laughs> references, but I, that film has some really striking, very specific details. And um, talking about listening to, you know, the, the, the filmmakers talking about their films. So I watched the director's um, behind the scenes kind of conversation for Blue. And there's a scene in there where there's a sugar cube that gets dunked in coffee. And they literally like went out and got a bunch of different kinds of sugar cubes and then auditioned each cube to see how fast it soaked up the coffee in a close-up. Um, because that affects pacing. Like literally every single tiny detail that's happening builds into the pacing that you're experiencing as a viewer. And, um, you know, it's why you ask me about like things I'm talking about with Seth. And I'm thinking about that one moment I told him I wanted to see him look down. Like it is, it gets, the conversation gets so specific. Um, and that's the part that I geek out on. Like I, it's, I love puzzles and it's just like, it's so fun to get that, um, that deep into that stuff. But for a lot of people, it's like, whoa, <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't need to know that. Um, you know, it's just fun to watch. Um, but that's, you know, like, so camera movement and how movement is portrayed on screen, I guess, is what I now look for. And, and as I think about the things that have struck me over a long period of time that have stayed with me, it's about seeing camera movement. Do you find yourself thinking things like that when you're watching a movie for the first time? Or if it's a good movie, you're just caught up in it and you're not thinking that. And then maybe you, it occurs to you on a, on a rewatch or afterwards. But when you're watching it, are you contemplating things like that? Like when you're watching Orlando, you're like, wow, this camera, huh, this camera's moving <laughs> back and forth. Does it take it out? You t- because of your experience, having literally done it, does it take yeah. it out of it, take you out of it a little bit? It can, but I, it is, I, it's really fun when you realize you've lost track of that and you are just watching the film. It doesn't happen very often. I'll admit now. Um, I, and then sometimes you notice it and you, but it like actually deepens your appreciation for watching it. So I recently was watching Oslo, the film that I think came out on HBO max or something like that. Um, and, uh, it, uh, it's based on the true story of the peace accords between Israel and Palestine. Um, and uh, the editing, the camera movement and the editing is a, they made very specific transition choices. Um, and, I, and I noticed and I really appreciated it. And I appreciated that clearly that conversation happened before the shooting because they set shots up for that kind of transition. Ah, okay, Not everyone gotcha. does that. Um, and so... You know, so it's a mix. And I, the, the way I really evaluate whether something's good anymore is if I can remember it two days later. <laughs> because <laughs> we, we have so much content available to us now that it's really easy to forget. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm processing so much raw footage in general that I, I you know, I, you, you have to make space for things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm losing track of my thought here, Rob. <laughs> We can edit that part out. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to join the, the next yeah. segment together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things I, I always like to contemplate on this show, uh, and as we're sort of wrapping up here, is the legacy. Because, of course, we're talking about people's final films, and like, yes. does, it, does yes. it add something to their legacy? Do they have a legacy? And, I mean, I don't think Peacock is – again, it's not a bad movie. I don't mean to, I don't mean to, to dismiss it out of hand. It's, it's a 
interesting thriller. It's got a, you know, certainly the angle about the, the, the dual personalities is something relative unique and the performances are good. But yeah. in terms of the legacy, clearly Sally Menke's name will go down as, as the person who, you know, changed film with, as the editor of Quentin Tarantino. And I have to think, like, you sent me this marvelous YouTube clip, uh, which is a collection of, of High Sallies. Yes. And why don't you explain to everybody what the High Sally thing is? So the High Sally thing, which is lovely and, again, speaks very well of Quentin Tarantino, um, is I, when Sally Menke couldn't be on location, I, he would have the actors and the crew and himself before or after takes go direct to camera and say hi Sally um, which meant that then in the edit bay she would see everyone saying hi to her and in an interview um, that I was listening to where she was talking she said that she was pretty sure that started around the time of Kill Bill because she had two little kids at that point and she couldn't be on set all the time and so that was way that was Quentin Tarantino's way of including her um, in the production uh, you know, because that's the other side. the The crazy thing about editing is that you you don't necessarily have a direct relationship with people who you literally spend months in an edit bay with um, on camera. So I loved that he was conscious enough um, of wanting to make sure she was included in the larger process of production. It's really charming. You can find the, the clip on YouTube of, of somebody who was nice enough to put all the high sallies together. Yeah. And it's really cute. And I, when I was looking at her filmography and looking at her career, her all too brief career, I have to think it's like, you know, I'm sure there were times in 1990 where she was stuck in the editing bay in that dark room with no windows, editing footage of, you know, like Donatello eating pizza <laughs> and, and, and probably going, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing with my life? I mean, that was a big movie, but nevertheless, I don't think that was necessarily her life's goal. Right, uh, you right. know, do we cut to Cowabunga here or do we cut to Cowabunga there? And then, you know, just a couple years later, uh, I mean, just in fact, just four years later, she's nominated for an Oscar for Pulp Fiction. Yeah. That's yeah. What, what an amazing four-year journey that was in. She was nominated again for Inglorious Bastards. She did not win either time, unfortunately. But, I mean, as long as Tarantino's movies are around and they will be around forever – uh, yes. at, at the very least, they will always be uh, on film playing at the New Beverly, thanks to Quentin Tarantino. I mean, her <laughs> legacy is secure. And even though, like I said, her career was cut really tragically short, nevertheless, you could see the, the brilliance that she had. This One of the great all-time film collaborations with the director and uh, oh, absolutely. a marvelous career. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, what I'm really grateful to, I have to say, is the chance to celebrate another woman filmmaker. Like, you know, we're in a moment right now where there's more appreciation <laughs> coming towards women, but I, I love that Quentin Tarantino's editor is a woman or was a woman, you know, like I, especially the one that started Reservoir Dogs. I was doing the math, you know, Quentin Tarantino was about 30 and Sally Menke was about 40. And I was like, I love that a 40 year old woman <laughs> was part of the launching point for Quentin Tarantino's career. And that that was who was in that deepest collaboration with him, you know, and I feel like it's really important for people to know that. And it's really important to celebrate her work because Quentin Tarantino is so established and well-respected um, that she was such an integral part of establishing his voice. Um, and I love it. And I love that you were up for having this kind of conversation 
um, to do that because, uh, you know, as we were talking about in talking about this episode to begin with, there's, there are surprising, there are women show up in surprising ways, you know, like Rena Fields making Jaws with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Like you, it's surprising. Schumacher, you know, yes. like, yeah. <laughs> like, like there are these men with these extraordinarily big careers and names <laughs> have women in the edit bay with them having those sensitive conversations, you know, and um, I want to make sure they're known about. So I'm so grateful to you, Rob, for, for having this conversation. Oh, you're very welcome. I was so excited to, like I said, I was a big fan of Changeland and I was just, I was, I've always been fascinated by editing. Like I said, I've always noticed that as I go through and I watch movies and I hear audio commentaries and I notice editing changes and I say, Oh wow, that really did change my view of this thing because yeah. of this cut. And I know, you know, and so I really have such a great appreciation. And so I was absolutely excited to talk about an editor. I love doing as many different uh, subjects on this show as possible. We do, you know, we tend to focus on directors because that's sure. tend to be it's, the conversation, yeah. but, yeah. but I love talking about anybody uh, who works in film because you, they have a legacy. They, they are a creative person. And Sally Mickey is again, one of the great, one of the great editors of all time, despite again, yeah. really not, it would have been amazing to see what she could have done as she had gotten older and worked more and more. And, and, you know, as we know, Tarantino has said, he's going to retire after, yeah one more movie now whether he whether he really does who knows but that would have been interesting <laughs> to see what she would have done uh yep. after he was done you know she obviously yep. kept working she did two films with billy bob thornton as director so obviously he knew her uh how talented she was because he hired her twice for two different yes. films. but it would have been really yeah. interesting to see what what other filmmakers she could have worked on with worked with uh after tarantino had decided to pack it in but again we won't get that chance but at least we have the movies uh, as they exist and they are they're just marvelous and i would say i've said this on other shows jackie brown is my favorite tarantino movie. oh yeah it's and, a great movie um yeah. it is the kind of movie that even though it's two and a half hours long i could watch another two and a half hours of it you know like if they had yeah. said oh there's a five hour cut of this i'd be like sign me up i, I want to well, see every scrap of footage of those characters because it, to me it's so it's just such a great movie and that that actually rob that's the sign that something has been edited well is that you're willing you could you could stay there. Oh, um, I want to live in that world so there's, bad. Yeah, the flow and integrity to your experience is so easy um, that you don't mind continuing, and that you know that's the goal. And it's um, it's so great. And I was going to say you had mentioned Raging Bull in the interview that I listened to with Sally Menke. That was her favorite edited film, um, huh. or that you know she was inspired by that film from an editing standpoint. So. Perfect. Thelma Schumacher. I know. Sally right? Mankey, I mean, people need to know, Rob. <laughs> well, we can do more episodes on, on all these other editors. We can, we can oh do it. There's gosh. more shows to I do. Will, <laughs> I will talk about and celebrate these editors as much as you want. And I can, I mean, in Changeland, I was, you know, revisiting again in time for this podcast. And it's just, wow. I think all of us who are involved, it's just, um, it was a really special experience. So it's uh, really fun to revisit it in any way at all. Um, and, um, you know, Seth is a really wonderful collaborator. And one of the really special things that we got to do, I, so we mixed that film at Skywalker Ranch. And, wow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and we ended up with a mostly female team. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, we... Here are the women, like the women mixers and the, re re you know, the <laughs> sound designers. And um, I think we had a legendary uh, 
um, sound artist there who is uh, this woman who is helping make our some like you wouldn't know that we have monster noises in there but like in some of these more subtle you know parts of the film we we had um, a really extraordinary group so I'm definitely in a mode where I'm like celebrate the women make sure everybody knows like <laughs> we they're all it's it's just so important um so okay I'm off I'm off of my my pedestal now. All right. Fair I, enough. <laughs> fair enough. So again, well, well, thank you so much for doing this. I was, I, the minute that you reached out to me and we were talking about this, I was really looking forward to this conversation because I said, I love film editing. I love talking about movies and getting to talk to someone who's actually edited is to me, it's just, it's just amazing. I, I yeah. really, I don't want to spend that kind of time in a dark room. I don't want to be a film editor, but I really appreciate <laughs> someone who sits in this windowless room. I, I can, I can definitely relate to someone sitting off in a room not enjoying life so they could produce something that other people will enjoy. I can relate to that very much. So, so, so thank you so much for doing this. It was great My talking pleasure. to you. My pleasure. Oh, you're very welcome. So of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of this show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to fade out on any podcatcher of your choice. And we're always talking uh, movies at, over on Twitter at fade out pod. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash podcast. So that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another fade out before you know it. But until then, we've reached the end of this particular script. So it's time to fade out.